Hi folks, and welcome back to the Years of Lead Pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and thanks for joining. So we're mostly done with the actual Moro case, and we'll talk about its backlash pretty much from here until eternity. But what I want to get into today is a guy named Giorgio Almirante and his long-sordid career as a professional fascist. Now, the Italian Republic called for an election for June 1979, more than a year after Moro's killing, and his death loomed over the proceedings, of course, despite the fact that Communist Party head Enrico Berlinguer had been so forceful in supporting the line of firmness, disassociating the party severely from the Red Brigade's actions, the elections were just not a great showing for the Communist Party. In fact, there are two issues that really worked against the Communists in this election. Firstly, they're punished for having, in the minds of some voters, been too close to the Brigate Rosse, uh, were the communists secret supporters of the terrorists? Well, they were at least too soft on them. They certainly represented instability in terms of strikers and so forth. At least that's what a common opinion was among detractors. But for others, it was precisely the fact that they fought so hard to defend the line of firmness that made them unelectable, if not unforgivable, they just didn't li lift a finger to save Aldo Moro, who had brought them to the very edge of ministerial posts. In the chamber, they lost 26 seats, while the Radical Party gained 14, the Socialists gained 5, the Democratic Socialist Party gained 5, and the Liberals gained 4. In the Senate, they lost 7 seats, with Socialists and Democratic Socialists gaining 3 apiece, and the Radicals gaining 2. It was a real dramatic downturn from their epic showing in 1976, having gained just 30% of the popular vote versus 34% three years prior. The Christian Democrats soldiered along with their obligatory 38%, and it was extremely doubtful if a left-wing coalition could muster enough votes to oppose their agenda. It also meant that the DC needed the center-left parties as usual. Of course, there was an incredible law and order backlash after the Moro kidnapping, and the rhetoric about cracking down on terrorism was pervasive. The fascist party, Movimento Sociale Italiano, was among the most active in denouncing the left-wing terrorism plaguing Italy. But perhaps surprisingly, they were the only other party to lose votes in 1979. Granted, they didn't have much to lose, since in 1976 they had only gotten around 7% of the vote, but now they had about 5 This was catastrophic for the leadership of Giorgio Almirante, who had taken the lead of the party in 1969 in a victory to fascist hardliners. Almirante, who had once represented the party of violence and elitism, was now viewed as just another part of the system. His detractors were calling for an alternative to the system, and the Rome base for the party's youth at Via Siena was an informal organizing point for fascist terrorists who rejected electoral politics for extreme violence. Indeed, the reason the MSE lost votes was probably their own associations with terrorism. With the law and order discourse going around, they thought that they would represent the big voice of reason and strength, but it backfired as people had become tired of the incessant violence of the right as well. 
we'll get more into the decisions, the incredibly awful choices made by the members of Teresa Posizione and the Nuclei Armati Revoluzionari, among others. But for the purposes of this episode, I wanted to get more into the figure of Giorgio Almirante. His bald head, carefully trimmed mustache, and dapper double-breasted suits, draped over his thin build, would have perhaps conveyed the impression of a discreet gentleman, perhaps even an unassuming person. But Giorgio Almirante was anything but. One of Almirante's skills, it seems, was making himself appear innocuous or even banal, soothing middle and upper class right wingers with talk of Italian culture, cinema, and history. He had a thousand ways of attempting to obscure or even deny the racism and anti Semitism of Italian fascism, practiced in different ways at different times, all the way up to his death in 1988. Yet during the fascist 20 years, he climbed the ranks of Italian journalism through energetic and enthusiastic propaganda for the regime, working for the most anti-Semitic fascists, spouting absolutely sincere and vitriolic racism the entire time. So Almirante, in a way, deserves his own episode, especially for the way that he tried to avoid his legacy going into the 1970s. Because I want to put his behavior in the spotlight, particularly during the fascist 20 years and the Republic of Salo. Because if you don't know how bad he was, it's hard to understand why he created so much consternation, if not terror, among the Italian left. And it's difficult to see where the inspiration for all the fascist terrorists of the late 1970s was coming from. This guy Almirante was not really a well-known figure in the fascist regime. He wasn't one of the hierarchs. But he was so faithful to it that he swore he would be willing to die for Mussolini during the Republic of Salo. You would think that maybe Almirante would have been born to a wealthy family, given his later inclinations towards the double-breasted suit. Or, based on his fondness for military stories, perhaps he came from a military background. Maybe a political one, given his reputation as an even-keeled politician of the right. But no. Giorgio Almirante's parents belonged to the theater, writing plays, acting, and directing. I know there's a lot there <laughs> about people with uh, theater backgrounds. Um, uh, George Lincoln Rockwell also had a, a vaudeville upbringing. Um, so if you see a theater kid... Punch him. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to delete that, I promise. So, um, yeah, no. Almirante's parents are theater people. They achieved some degree of notoriety, actually, and little Giorgio was brought up to participate in some way in the theatrical pedigree. Now, there's a lot that happens between the time he's born and the time he becomes a diehard fascist, of course. But let's just say his family had no problems during the fascist takeover of Italy during the mid-1920s. While his father wasn't a fascist per se, he didn't really mind them at all, and Giorgio took to the regime like a fish to water. Indeed, Giorgio's father became one of the most prominent directors of the fascist 20 years, while his son enrolled in the Department of Letters at Sapienza in Rome. I'll quote quickly from Aldo Grandi's excellent biography of Almirante, which I rely on extensively for this episode. 
Black hair, blue eyes, softened features, very different from those of his uncles, Luigi and Ernesto. Passion for study, sport, and football in particular, but also for everything that was growing around him in terms of the nation's prestige, development of the economy, social progress, the feeling of participating in a perpetually ongoing revolution. At university, Almirante joined the fascist university group, or GOOF, where he participated in the theater and advocated fascist politics. In a short period of time, he fell completely under the spell of fascism. He later said, quote, I essentially want to say that I was not born a protagonist, but a participant and in some ways a witness that I very quickly felt immersed and gently inserted into the destiny of a generation. For most, it was not to be a happy destiny. His first gig in journalism was at a paper called the Tevere. He starts in news, goes to film criticism, and then to Africa as a war correspondent in 1940, and he finally becomes the editor-in-chief. The Tevere was not just a kind of a run-of-the-mill paper in its day, you should know. Its director was a Sicilian named Interlandi, and he was a kind of ultra-fascist in Grandi's words. Well... Let's hear what Almirante has to say. Quote, Yes, I read the newspapers. I was an ultra-fascist in the positive sense of the term, and fascism fully responded to my spiritual and moral needs and also to my desires to make my way in life. I was very introverted and extremely shy. I thought about becoming a professor, and in fact, I graduated in literature. The so-called myths of the regime seen with the eyes of that time as an adolescent were the national one, the state one, and the social one, more precisely the possibility of mythologizing contextually without giving prevalence to one or the other, but seeing them essentially united. So one thing Almirante does, he's in his early 20s, is he organized university events through the goof and uses his post at Tevere to publicize them. And for the most part, He's just drawn to the cultural stuff at first, entering into a film criticism competition, and sort of becoming uh, drawn especially to the radical sentiment among the ultra-fascist youth. When Mussolini appointed party secretary Achille Starace, Almirante and others joined in poking fun at the overbearing wannabe. He later stated, He wasn't unpleasant. We all made fun of him a bit and then regretted it, or at least I regretted it. Starace appeared as the form while we felt the substance. I didn't feel fascism as a limit because I thought the same way. I had no basis for comparison. Perhaps if I had had them, the comparison would have borne not just dissent, but at least criticism. It was a dress up that fit me perfectly. I had no political ambitions. I was very closed, introverted. Goliardism freed me from this closure and gave me an imperious and open sense of life. The cultural events in which I participated were done as I liked them to be done. I absolutely didn't want to change this fascism. So it's the theatricality, I think, especially that grabs him. Uh, when he says goliardism, this is a word that you often hear associated particularly with Italian fascism. In Twitter, you would basically call it irony poisoning or something of that nature. 
Grandi writes about it in his book, describing it really well, apropos the style that Almirante continues to use into the 1950s during his speeches and in his columns. Quote, Almirante was not just a professional, someone who had learned the profession of journalism in the editorial offices of a newspaper. He was also gifted with that irony, sometimes biased like his entire way of interpreting work, which highlighted the pretense and presumed stupidities of his opponent in sensational light without any form of reverence for anyone. And you can kind of tell based on Almirante's own youth spent during the mid-1930s in Rome, both in the university fascist group and in journalism, the way that he evolves his brand as a hard-hitting and ruthless fascist with a tendency for the extreme, a romanticization of violence, and a disdain for anything normal and boring. There was a fascist slogan in those days that became popular, perfect fascist book and rifle, and that sort of identified the two prongs of literature and violence that were idealized among the fascist youth. For his part, Almirante began teaching Italian to get by along with his party activism while moving more or less rapidly from news journalism to columnist and critic. His writing is just pure doggerel, really, which, you know, has some sort of, some, some have sort of reassessed as being full of vigor and enthusiasm. But really, it's just sort of this swirling prose that always lands back with the black shirts, the fascist brio, the thrill of continuous national revolution. One of his quotes will suffice to demonstrate this here. Quote, the great achievements of society, the affirmations of the human spirit, the dogmas of fascist reconstruction are eternal values that cannot be expressed with machines alone, not even symbolically. It takes the heart and intellect and the will that knows how to overcome obstacles. It takes man in all his strengths. As you can see, he is practically exuding his love of fascism, but also chalking up all these grand feats to the ideology that had not, in fact, delivered on many of its promises beyond totalitarian control. Mussolini had launched into the so-called War of Births, the War of Grain, all of these efforts to summon the jingoism of national ideology towards the efforts to breed and grow more. People worked more, ate less, and the constant upheaval was felt by many as stressful and crazy. If you get a chance to watch Amarcord by Federico Fellini, it is a pretty hilarious send-up of the way that fascism empowered the most irritating and stupidest types of people, giving these low-level functionaries in provincial posts this incredible and undeserved feeling of power and authority. Well... Almirante was sort of emblematic of that guy in a way. He's just extremely enthusiastic and dogmatic, coming from a low post at a really bad newspaper that comes from maybe the most obscenely doctrinaire fascist publication in Italy. And just to go over some more of his columns, there are many comparisons one could make to U.S. writers working today. He delves into birth statistics superficially enough to pump up the regime. It's that kind of thing. Uh, when Mussolini goes to war in Ethiopia in 1935, Almirante was bumped up to the third page in the newspaper Tevere, where he wrote about city life under the incredibly inventive heading, Everything, Nothing, and Something. But Almirante is not just a lapdog for the regime. He actively pushed it to get more racist and anti-Semitic. The thing was that the editor of Tevere, Interlandi, 
This is a guy who had major aspirations, and he knew that he couldn't climb the political ladder without impressing people. He would never be able to make fun of Mussolini, but he could point out people in close circles of Il Duce who might be playing in the shadows, conspiring to divert the purity of the fascist regime, undermining secretly the doctrines of the Italian people. It's said, for instance, that the Tevere was the most fascist paper outside of Mussolini's own Popolo d'Italia in Rome. So it really kind of set the tone for what was, by 1937, the so-called empire. When Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, the League of Nations sanctioned Italy, and that brought Italy closer to Nazi Germany, with which Mussolini had some reservations. See, Mussolini was pretty close to the Austro-fascist regime that took power after the brief civil war in that country, wrested control from the social democracy put into effect after World War I and the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mussolini wanted an empire, all right. He envisioned fascism as the return of Rome and treated Rome as the center of a new imperial age. He believed Italy could expand its influence and empire across the Alps into Austria. Thus, Mussolini opposed the Austrian na Nazis' assassination of the Austro-fascist leader Engelbert Dollfuss in 1934, which heralded the spread of Nazi influence over the, Itali over the Austrians. By 1936, that Italo-German tension had relaxed with the League of Nations sanctions against Italy, and in November you have the Rome-Berlin axis. With this swing, you have a change in the press, which now targets England and France with vitriolic attacks, along with increasingly furious broadsides against Freemasons and Jews. If you read Mussolini's collected works in the, in the 1920s, you find perhaps strangely a real effort to extend friendship to France and England and the United States too, along with appropriations of the Enlightenment tradition, the Mazzini style of humanist revolution, and other things that would otherwise be considered maybe even liberal in a sense. As everyone knows, he was supported in those years by the Hearst Papers and a number of big corporations and finance houses in the United States. But the more Mussolini sought to expand his empire, the more he ran afoul of the other countries, in spite of the complicated sentiments of Italians towards those other countries of Europe. Not all negative, to be sure. The drift into the arms of Hitler was a kind of process, in other words. And by 1937, you have an axis formulated. I should offer that Mussolini was still a gross bastard and an awful tyrant throughout that entire earlier period. But once he enlists with the Nazis, things really begin to go downhill very, very rapidly. For instance, his collected works are like more than 30 volumes, right? And you have to understand that this guy wrote all the time. And during the first years of fascism from 1918, really all the way up through the 1920s and into the 1930s, some of these years take up like a whole book in the collected works. He just has so many speeches, so many writings, articles, etc. But once he signs up with Hitler, you start to realize that things are getting darker for him. He writes a lot less. Sure, he's more focused on the war that he just started in Ethiopia, but the general aspect of the regime is changing very rapidly, way more rapidly than he can keep up with. Telesio Interlandi at Tevere was a big part of this shift. 
launching into attacks on England, France, Jews, everything that he could consider racially impure. Now, Interlandi was a Sicilian, of course, and if you know Italy a little bit, the idea of a Sicilian being a racist is a little bit strange. So it's thought that this was more opportunistic and, than genuine. But nevertheless, Interlandi had always been a racist. And uh, Almirante became basically the editor-in-chief here. In Grandi's words, quote, statements appeared in the columns of the Roman newspaper capable of making one's skin crawl, which gave a glimpse of what would happen months later when fascist racial politics had its natural outcome in a manifesto which even today represents a shame for those who signed it and advocated its principles supporting its large-scale application. Guess who signed it? Almirante, of course. In one of his columns, and by this point, the scope of his writings went way beyond city affairs, he wrote, quote, Cultivate the pride of the race. This is the insignia of our new legions, the motto of the victorious Italian pioneers. Physical and sexual pride of the race understood as education and discipline not confined within the scope of the law. It is a commitment that every individual must assume before himself and before society with a decision of intent. It is a spiritual heritage that the new Italian colonizer must bring with him to the land that he will dominate with serene and severe justice, not with weakness. So the first time he's on the front page of Tevere, it's an article about women where he writes... Our women, the women of yesterday, represented motherhood, family, work, the three great forces on which nobility and continuity of the race rests. So significant in these days is also a book called The Jews in Italy by Paolo Orano, which summed up the major currents of Italian fascist anti-Semitism. Quote, the question is clearly one of race. It is a question of knowing whether the Jew can be an Italian, not whether he must be. There's no doubt that he must be since the law qualifies him as such, and at the appropriate moment he must wear his good uniform and serve under the Italian flag. But can he be? In the best case scenario, can the best of Jews always be a good Italian? And can we Italians of race, blood, culture and with very deep and firm roots in our history, feel equal to the Jews whose mystique is entirely outside the borders of the homeland and has hosted them, that has hosted them for some time. He continues, quote, Jewish imperialism as essentially capitalist has merged and confused with English and American imperialism. Judaism and Puritanism, closely united, are leading world capital to conquer the planet. So, that's sort of the fascist approach now. Even though they're talking about empire, conquest, and colonization, they're lashing out at so-called Jewish imperialism as a sort of uh, driving force. So, Almirante, of course, promotes all the worst anti-Semitic garbage in his part of Tevere, including mashups of fascists like Giovanni Preziosi, who followed Alfred Rosenberg, so it's kind of a weird version of Christianity, sort of messianic and chiliastic, in which the German state would become the new Jesus Christ and a sort of mythical overcoming of worldly limitations. But it's also included 
But it also included very basic biological racism, suggesting that Aryans were simply genetically superior to all other races. Preziosi would publish the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that infamous Tsarist forgery, with a foreword by Julius Evola, the guru of spiritual racism and anti-Semitism. And here really is the beginning, interestingly enough, of Italian anti-Zionism. Preziosi viewed Zionism as an effort to, quote, weave a network, spread the funeral shroud of the three curses as the initiative and intuitive Jew Enrico Heine sought to sang to sleeping Germany. It's what we all see every day and not everyone understands. Interlandia sends him to report from... So, at this point, Interlandia sends him to report from the Middle East. And of course, you can imagine the horrible, horrible texts that emerge from this. Here's a passage just because I'm cruel. Quote, I felt spiritually very close to Christopher Columbus, and although neither birds nor floating branches had given me the certainty of an imminent landing, even the cry, Earth, Earth, it spontaneously came to my lips. Soon after Almirante returns to Italy, the fucking Führer visits and meets with Interlandia, and it just continues the whole downward spiral into evil. Almirante's reports on these events are just purple with discussions of Mussolini's caring smile over seas of black shirts and all that kind of ridiculous nonsense. His anti-Semitic paranoia continued to grow more shrill as well. In Bologna, he announced there were 22 foreign Jewish doctors taking away jobs from members of the Italian race. Why do the young Italian doctors have to suffer in their own cities, foreign and moreover Jewish competition, he asks. So, in 1938, as the anti-Semitic movement is growing within fascist Italy, Almirante is in his mid-twenties, and he's in a key position, and Mussolini wants to assign roles for a specialist magazine that pushes the aggressive racism to an even higher pitch. The journal is called Difesa della Raza, Interlandia is put in charge. Interlandi is put in charge. And Almirante is made its editorial secretary. Difesa della Raza is, part, is basically the accompanying magazine to join the Manifesto of the Race, a torridly racist document that declares, quote, The population of today's Italy is mostly of Aryan origin, and its civilization is Aryan. There now exists a pure Italian race. This ancient purity of blood is the greatest title of nobility of the Italian nation. It's time for Italians to frankly proclaim themselves racist. All the work that the regime has done in Italy up to now is fundamentally racist. And to this, Almirante would add, quote, Racism is the broadest and most courageous self-recognition that Italy has ever attempted. So he would later say in 1985, three years before his death, quote, I was in contact with all the newspaper's collaborators. I went to the printer to lay out the layout, and I also wrote some articles. What type of racism was it? Consulting that magazine, it turns out that it was, today this formula is a bit funny, but at the time it seemed credible and in any case was supported by us, 
a racism of culture and spirit. Italian racism did not consist in persecuting Jews to the gas chambers, but in attempting to cleanse the Italian cultural environment of what were defined as aspects of typical post-war Jewish culture. Here's what he wrote at the time, though. Quote, There was talk of spiritual racism. Attention! Whoever speaks like this has every appearance of wanting to fall into the inglorious ways of those who, under the threat of sanctions, exalted the imperialism of the spirit, or, seized by the terror of the truncheon, professed to spiritually fascists. It is better to talk about integral racism, in which, as in all of Mussolini's creations, theory and practice harmonize in a clear and realistic vision of humanity. We start from the fundamental biological fact, existence of an Italian race, and arrive at the gigantic political fact, existence, and strengthening of the Italian empire. He would claim, of course, that he'd only really turned racist for those five years during the Defesa della Razza between 1938 and 1943, but Tevere was already extremely racist by that point. This, of course, puts the lie to his claim that he had only had a brief flirtation with racism, but also his writings were not of the spiritual or cultural type, as he had later claimed. His writing was all about blood and biology of racism. He wrote in just his second article for Defesa della Rata, quote, Racism may constitute the decisive factor in this clarification of ourselves to ourselves. Racism, in fact, makes us feel, regardless of any vain rhetoric, any pedantic traditionalist obsequiousness, the bonds that bind us to our past. Racism calls us to tradition, but to a tradition that pulsates with the blood of our veins, to a tradition that is not nostalgia or memory, but life, to a tradition that, according to Mussolini's saying, is at the same time respect for past and anxiety about the future. I won't go on here with a bunch of racist and anti-Semitic fascist horror published by Difesa della Razza, but sufficient to say that Almirante was a main leader in this tendency. On October 6, 1938, the Fascist Grand Council signed the Racial Laws, which included disenfranchisement of the Italian Jewry. Almirante, by this point, was completely feverish, his support for the racist laws unwavering. He advocated the racist laws and chided, quote, timid complaints about, quote, the total elimination of Jews from Italian schools. Almirante even enrolled into Niccolo Gianni's school of fascist mysticism. Gianni was the director of the esoteric Doctrina Fascista, and the school of mystical fascism thought that there was something very mystical about Italian fascist racism. For his part, Almirante denounced France, which, quote, embraced a reverse racism that glorifies crossbreeding and assimilation and he supported the ramping up of racial laws into 1939. Around this time, he's hanging out with Julius Evola, the guy who we should more or less be familiar with by now. The two became buddies, but whereas Almirante believed in a biological racism that was certainly vulgar as hell, Evola was into the more traditionalist style of racism, which involved a fusion of biological soul and spiritual racism. 
I won't get into the differences here because they're mostly pedantic, but let's just say that Avila had a big influence on Mussolini's anti-Semitic laws as well. Almirante argued in 1942, though, that Avila was a, quote, gourmet of racism, whereas, quote, racism must be for everyone. This distinction would come up 15 years later, during the 1950s when Almirante became the leader of the so-called left faction of the fascist party's successor, the Movimento Sociale Italiano. He was more of a popular leader, a would-be hero of the masses, rather than a super elitist who wanted to speak to the elites of the country. And while he enrolled in mysticism, he was always a hardcore Catholic rather than an esotericist. So, Italy goes to war in 1939, World War II sort of sparks up, and the ultra-fascists are obviously rooting for this. Almirantes made a second lieutenant because the fascists were very old school in giving people prestigious positions based on loyalty rather than skill. He's going to be sent to Sardinia, but he says nothing's going to happen there, so he wants to go as a war correspondent to North Africa instead. He gets there just as things started to turn for the worst for Italy, but he's like still singing the praises of the troops and good morale in Libya. He ultimately becomes a special envoy while there. Almirante wants to write with great enthusiasm. Quote, War is a great chorus of hundreds of thousands of voices. It is an immense drama which hundreds of thousands of actors play on the world stage. In our case, in front of the torrid African audiences. You can totally see his theatricality erupting here. And the fascist army sort of prevaricates for a while while they're there. They draw a lot of criticism from Mussolini. The English counterattack happens, and the fascists start losing pretty badly. Almirante becomes kind of embittered at this point and kind of uses it as ammunition for his rage against the United States and Jews in particular. Turning to the movies again, he starts calling out Jews who have taken on Italian names to avoid the racial laws. He quite literally names the names and points the finger publicly at these guys in a very humiliating and pretty Trumpian way. He says, quote, his name is, just to be faithful to our rule of always speaking clearly, Aldo de Benedetti, but he's called Poor Aldo by some directors and producers, for whom it doesn't seem true that they can provide him with work. You know, he's creating these uh, nicknames for people, these derisive and diminutive nicknames. Um, so not only does Almirante believe he's on a kind of crusade to eject Jews and perceived Jewishness from Italian cultural life, but he wants to turn the cinema into a propaganda apparatus for racism. He asks, after the four years of official racism, what has Italian cinema done for racial propaganda? Zero. Absolutely zero. <laughs> so, on July 25th, 1943, as the fascists are getting trounced in Africa and the Allies are descending on Italy, Mussolini gets fired by the fascist Grand Council and the King of Italy. It was very disillusioning for Giorgio, who visits his ailing dad before fleeing to the north. After Mussolini gets freed and returns to Italy, taking the helm of a German-occupied rump state in northern Italy under the auspices of the so-called Italian Social Republic, Almirante moves up to the Villa Amadei in Salo, to live alongside the Minister of Popular Culture, Fernando Mezzasoma, near the Feltrinelli Villa on Lake Garda, where Mussolini moves with his mistress, 
Almirante becomes Metasoma's private secretary. Every morning, Metasoma reports to Il Duce, and when he's sick or unavailable, Almirante goes in instead. He spends 18 months, the life of the Social Republic, right there with Mussolini and whatever was left of the fascist regime. He later remarked, quote, A protest! Yes! We went with the RSI, not so much as an expression of duty, but as an expression of moral and ideal revolt. His reflections on meeting Mussolini are various, spanning from admiration of the latter's humbleness to the darkness of his moods towards the end. In fact, when Metasoma gets effectively promoted to Minister of Interior, Almirante becomes the chief of his cabinet. Commenting on one of his last speeches, Almirante explained, quote, That speech could have been dedicated to revenge, retaliation, anger, but instead it was the apologia of the Italian people, the defense of that people betrayed and dragged by others onto bad paths. He defended his people while they were abandoned by them. I love Mussolini, and I especially love that speech. The fascist myth of the Social Republic was already one of a stab in the back. Italy had been betrayed. Sala was a place of redemption, not of sadness and especially of socialization, and the return of purity for the fascist ideal. The Freemasons had been responsible for the overthrow of Mussolini. Judaism was the front line of Freemasonry. He wrote for the mystical fascists a couple more times, just to keep in line with the wild anti-Semitism, and when the officers were conscripted into the Black Brigades, he served his role, albeit briefly. He claims to have never seen a partisan. In a short period of time, Almirante is helping Mussolini move the headquarters to Milan. As April 25th approaches, Almirante burns as many documents as he can. His boss, Metasoma, goes to Como with Mussolini and Claretta Patacci. On that night, Almirante sleeps in an abandoned apartment near the train station, passing the gas station where Mussolini, his spouse, and his fellow fascist leaders are strung up by their feet, before going into a year and a half long exile. So yeah, that was the end of the fascist regime. And uh, Almirante really spent the fascist 20 years and the uh, experience of the social republic as a diehard racist anti-Semite, leading the most ultra-fascist newspaper into pushing the regime to get worse and worse and worse. He was a special envoy and second lieutenant in the military, though mostly he was just a war correspondent for a, a failing effort in Africa. And then he moved to Lake Garda with the rump Mussolini faithful of the Republic of Salo, staying with the regime to Milan and even briefly serving as a black brigade member until literally the final days made his fascist career impossible, at which point he slipped into hiding for over a year, despite the fact that there would be no charges brought against him. After the war... Almirante gets a job selling scooters in the suburbs around Turin. He's dirt poor, and his description is pretty helpful here. Quote, Those were the hardest times because I had no money to sleep in a hotel and I spent nights in the train stations when the guards weren't kicking me out or on the benches in the gardens. I found another employer who sent me to the province with a slap on the shoulder and gave me a large loaf of bread. 
that good homemade bread with which I lived for two good days. So during his time from late 1945 going through 1946, Almirante sort of lives this life as a vagrant with threadbare clothes, living day to day, totally crestfallen. In some ways, his mystical adherences sort of guide this weird liminal space-time experience that all of Italy was going through, a restoration of sovereign law over and against fascism, during which a state of exception was sort of cast over society and partisans regrouped through the Volante Rosa to murder people who had been fascist officials without trial. Part of what calmed the situation down was Palmiro Togliatti's amnesty on June 22nd, which riled up a lot of the Communist Party's base, making it safer for people like Almirante to start organizing again. I won't go into this process, which I discuss in the first episode on Ordine Nuovo, during which people like Pino Romualdi, Pino Rauti, and Giorgio Almirante find common ground as militants in the struggle. They begin with smaller-scale actions, leafleting and raising the black flag of fascist squadrismo here and there. They also attacked Communist Party offices and other left-wing or democratic headquarters. Generally, they were attempting to recapture the spirit of fascist violence, in conditions of prevailing anti-fascism. Especially in their activities against the Communist Party, these efforts were supported by the Pentagon's Los Angeles network, which saw fairly clearly that the Communist Party presented a real threat of gaining power and flipping Italy to the Soviet bloc, which went against Yalta and would have totally transformed the post-war calculus. But soon these fascist organizers realized that the conditions were not amenable to small-scale militancy, that assumed the general and uninterrupted course of a fascist Italy would be restored through mass uprisings. Thus, they created the Movimento Sociale Italiano, the Italian social movement, in December 1946 with the support of a wealthy lawyer named Arturo Michelini as a way to cultivate the social milieu for a political movement to overcome the newly instated democratic republican system. These guys, Michelini, Romualdi, Almirante, they didn't really know each other very well. They just came together with the same idea through militant activities and journals like Giovanni Tonelli's Rivolta Ideale and ultimately Secolo d'Italia, um, or the Italian century, which would ultimately go bankrupt and get bought up by the party to become its official paper. They met in a place in Rome offered by Michelini, very austere, and Almirante's experience as a journalist and editor would come in handy. He basically had no life outside of setting up the party, going from place to place in a worn-out suit, sleeping in trains and on benches, and living hand-to-mouth still. His dedication, and the fact that he was one of the few who did not face charges after the war, made him an optimal candidate for secretary of the party. And so it was that Almirante went from being the chief of the cabinet of Mussolini's minister of interior in the Repubblica Sociale Italiano to being the leader of the Movimento Sociale Italiano, its immediate political heir, two years after Mussolini's execution. And one thing everyone says about him is that he threw himself into activism with a lot of energy and vigor, calling for the changing of the new constitutional system through a movement from the bottom. 
This represented the so-called left wing or social wing of the party compared to Michelini, the lawyer who wanted to work with the bourgeoisie to establish a far-right status quo from the top down. And even further to the right were the Evolians, who believed themselves warrior priest elites and wanted to overthrow the liberal order through revolutionary action. Almirante held rallies all over the country at the end of the 1940s, and they were all heavily disputed. He would show up, the communists would be there, fights would immediately break out, and the rally would get shut down. It was pretty formulaic. But on October 10th, 1947, at Piazza Colonna in Rome, things came to a head. Some 3,000 supporters showed up. Communist Party leaders Paeta and Pacciardi saw it and burst into Parliament shouting, There are fascists here! It was a rainy day. People went out to see what was going on. The public was gathering. Carabinieri with rifles are shielding themselves in doorways. A fleet of cars and trucks with the MSE leaders inside pulled up as a crowd was assembling and traffic began to stop. Fascist songs broke out. Almirantes hidden in a truck covered with a tarp and began to speak over a loudspeaker. And here's the testimony from one who saw the event unfold. Quote, it seemed like a nightmare to me because the accent was the same as then and the words were still the same and the faces of the youngsters who opened their raincoats closed up to the collar to show their shirts to the neighbors were the same black that they wore when the jeeps were called into action and the sirens finally interrupted Almirante's provocative speech and the departments of agents and carabinieri charged the crowd to disperse it and the short rubber truncheons began to wave on the heads and shoulders of the most rebellious. The dispersion of the fascists was general, and their escape very rapid. But as they ran away, they sang the anthem of the brave men of the First World War. As they ran away, they shouted, Long live Il Duce. As they ran away, they retaliated against defenseless civilians that they met by chance. So... It's clear that almost immediately after the war, Almirante is presenting this fascist violence in the form of secret paramilitary formations, which are involved in the original formation of the MSE, a party whose impact on Italian citizens has an almost hallucinatory, literally nightmarish quality that reawakens the entire phenomenological corpus of the fascist 20 years. The chaotic interruption between 1945 and 1947 is viewed as something of a crack, where the Constitution is an effort to start anew, but the MSC is like this bridge that tempts people to return to the world of myths that has broken apart. And for Almirante, the fascist regime has never been legitimately put down. He still lived his life, along with the veterans of the Social Republic, as, in a sense, the remnants of the regime. To them, nothing had to be restored because it was all right there. Only the illegitimate pretense of authority needed to be torn down to reveal the true Italy being obscured by the occupiers. They really were living in this kind of mystical fantasy still, and it's really weird to try to describe how the worlds collided. Almirante was elected to the Chamber of Deputies representing the Rome area that year, and the violence followed him into Parliament. On October 12, 1948, just a year after the Piazza Colonna, Togliatti speaking on the interior budget in the chamber. His speech sort of derails into a lamentation about the repression of communists after a fascist had shot him earlier in the year. 
He's saying that the old partisans are now being criminalized while the fascists are getting respect. Almirante couldn't stand it, and he yells, Assassini at Togliatti in the communist side of the chamber. Pandemonium ensued. The communists start yelling for him to be kicked out. A communist deputy named Giovanni Grilli in the first seat lunges into the right-wing sector. A police commissioner named Vincenzo La Roca tries to hold him back, but he's followed by other communists. The clerks on the floor basically form a human barricade, and Grilli struggles free of La Roca's grip to charge at the monarchists and other right-wingers, breaking through the cordon. He's pushed back by a heavyweight right-winger and restrained, while Almirante stands back amid some empty seats looking frightened. There are melees all around at this point. Fists are flying, and Giancarlo Payetta spots his mark. Payetta climbs up a ladder towards the side and traverses to jump down onto Almirante from the sky. La Roca tries to cut him off, but Payetta shunts him to the side and attempts his maneuver. His hand just barely grazes Almirante's head, while other communists converge on him, and he tries to cover himself with his hands and arms. To the rescue of Almirante, who's getting pummeled, comes a Christian Democrat named Eugenio Spiazzi, who pulls him out of the struggle. It was all a display of what the MSC meant to much of Italy. A constant thorn in the side of the Republic, a constant reminder of the injustices of the fascist regime, and a constant provocation against the left in particular. For his part, Almirante resigned his role as party leader in 1950 and dedicated himself to public rallies, politics, and journalism. As he involved himself deeper and deeper into what some call the political solution, his politics crystallized around a call for reform of the constitutional system in order to return Italy to an expression of the popular will. Yet amid this reformism, he draws rebukes from people like Giulio Evola, uh, particularly over his hedging on racism and anti-Semitism. In 1956, as anti-communism spread through the reactions of the Soviet repression of the Hungarian Revolution, the old fascist acquaintances broke into a really messy public dispute. Published in the magazine of Ordine Nuovo, which had broken with the MSE after the ascent of the lawyer Michelini to Almirante's position as the head of the party, Evola's rebuke recalled their days together pontificating on the racial purity of Italians, claiming that Almirante had abandoned the clarity and revolutionary core of fascism in favor of a mealy-mouthed conformity to the systems of power. Remember, Almirante had been sort of a goliard who poked fun at authority even within the fascist state, making him an ultra-fascist keen on constant national revolution. Now, Evola was basically saying he was selling out. And it was partly true. Almirante, through his second wife, who he lived in sin with for years and years despite his public advocacy against divorce, reached backroom deals with his adversary Michelini to maintain the center within the MSE divided between the corporate boardroom and the fascist attempt at a union, the Chisnal. On an episode of a publicly broadcasted political uh, television show, Almirante outlined his proposals for national reform like this. If it were up to us, what we call the National Labor Parliament should be established. That is, a corporate parliament in which the selection takes place from below. The choice takes place with all possible guarantees of freedom. 
The choice should also take place with the adoption of those competence criteria that have predominant importance. I don't think it's necessary for me to dwell on what the national labor state thus conceived would be with a national labor parliament at its center. He continued, quote, Someone died next to me in the war. I remember him with particular feeling, and I don't consider anything he could say, do, or present as grotesque. Someone else died next to me during the period of the Italian Social Republic, and I have an instinctive, sentimental veneration for him. When I talk about it, I get emotional. Entire generations of Italians can share this feeling. Therefore, if the Italian social movement is a human community, born as a community of the vanquished, if we were born like this, we are not all ashamed. After the death of Michelini in 1969, Almirante stepped back into the role of the leader of the party. Immediately, Ordine Nuovo officially rejoined the MSE, although a, a paramilitary faction that refused parliamentarism, called the Ordine Nuovo political movement, remained outside to commit terrible acts of terrorism. The MSE under Almirante also maintained relations with the Avanguardia Nazionale, particularly in the context of the Reggio revolt led by Chisnal activist Ciccio Franco. In fact, the head of Avanguardia Nazionale, Stefano della Chiaia, collaborated directly with Almirante to plan a rally at Villa San Giovanni in Calabria. In exchange for allowing the MSE rally to take place, Almirante appeared publicly with a visible edition of the Avanguardia newspaper poking out of his pocket. As for the Borghese coup that was to take place around that time, it appears Almirante was not a participant and was actually a bit anxious about what might happen. He was regularly updated on the night of the execution of the plot as to what was going down, and in fact he was likely hoping that it would fall through. He had a tense relationship with the Black Prince, Junior Valerio Borghese, ever since, in the waning days of the Republic of Salo, he had attempted and failed as an official in the Ministry of Culture to suppress a publication of Borghese's for exceeding the allowed number of pages. It was a real debacle. Indeed, in at least one of the ensuing coup plots of the mid-1970s, Almirante's name was on a list of people to be disposed of in the early days of the coup. So I think I'll leave it there. As we've already described at length, the political infighting and machinations of the MSE during the 1970s, their electoral decline in the mid-1970s after the days of April, their uninspiring attempt, especially headed by the Almirante faction, to unite with the monarchists in a national right formulation, the efforts of Pino Rauti's alternative to the system current to draw the MSE back into the politics of youth, violence, and spiritual racism, and the development of a bloody terrorist movement out of the party's youth groups in Rome. Almirante would disavow racism as a thing of the past, no longer upheld by the MSE or his own political position, even as he collaborated with Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale, paving the way for the next generation of party militants to build up an aggressive front that went from murdering leftists to slaughtering innocent civilians. Today, he's sort of viewed as the grandfather of the party that's currently in charge of Italy, the Fratelli d'Italia, having built the party from which it ultimately emerged twice removed. So that's it for today, folks. 
I hope this has been helpful in understanding how the MSE grew directly out of the most racist and anti-Semitic currents of the Mussolini regime, and ultimately spawned some of the worst actors of the darkest era of Republican Italy. And we'll keep tabs on Almirante going forward as we track the developments of the far right during the years of lead. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. I've been your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod.